Swedish chemist. I'm refreshed. I, I, I just appeared for a weekend with, with Chris Bodena, my dish compadre, and a, a friend of ours. And we went out to West Virginia to a little cabin in the woods and had a lovely break from everything. And some mushrooms over a campfire, which was a pretty lovely thing to do on a, on a beautiful spring day. There were chickens nearby, roosters and turkeys and all sorts of things, which is all a very roundabout way of saying this week we have, finally, it seems, David French. David French is the famous, world famous pioneer of, the, 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 of, of what's called David Frenchism. <laughs> I'm being silly. But he, he's a political writer. He's been coming into his own very much the last few years, former attorney who took on high profile cases for religious freedom. He was a major in the Army Reserve who served in Iraq. Before that, he served as president of FIRE, the campus free speech group. He left National Review after Trump was elected. And he now writes for the Dispatch, one of our fellow mm -hmm. Substack orgs, cabals, and the Atlantic, not one of our Substack <laughs> cabals. His <laughs> latest book is Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. David, thank you so much for coming. It's all, I, I've wanted to talk to you forever. We have never actually interacted. If you're online, one would assume we had, but we, we haven't. Right. Who, who interacts anyway anymore? I, I, <laughs> I don't have, a, I've never had a political social life in Washington. Have you, I mean, is your no. friendship circles around the sort of conservative movement? Well, first, thanks so much for having me because this is a real honor and a real treat. I've been wanting to have a conversation with you for a long time. And no, I live in Tennessee, so I never, I was telling somebody the other day that aside from when I chaperoned my kids' eighth grade trips to D.C., I don't think I've spent more than two consecutive nights in D.C. Wow. Ever. And so I've, I'm friends with my colleagues, you know, of course, and but my friendships are, you know, my core friendships are all, you know, right around me here in Tennessee or, you know, folks I met in school who are around the country. But, um, yeah, I'm very much it's funny because I'm constantly accused of wanting to be at those Beltway cocktail parties that everybody talks about oh, yes. all the time. <laughs> these, these cocktail parties that are happening by the hour in Georgetown, uh, <laughs> which we all want to go to. I mean, there's yeah. several premises in there that are completely false obviously <laughs> but yes i i only as I, as everyone knows i only have my opinions because i want to get invited to these cocktail parties every day of my life right. i thought i actually would rather stick needles in my eyeballs and go to any of those <laughs> cocktail parties is neither here nor there but don't you think that being maybe somewhere i don't want to say real but somewhere mm -hmm. outside this little bubble is actually incredibly important psychologically to especially oh. in this period of ideological ferment because you are it's so easy to want to be socially accepted and that to yeah. drive where your where your views are how do you how do you how would you respond to that oh i think i mean i think it's incredibly important just per personally and professionally so the the personal part i think is it's a way you sort of survive all of this this era of hatred is by you have friends who don't care what you think about politics i mean my closest friends from school that we get together all the time and we're in constant contact. Most of them voted for Trump. I'm not, I, I didn't vote for him either time, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We have history. 
going back to the very first weekend of college when we all met very first weekend of college. And, you know, so from a personal standpoint, that's incredibly important from a professional standpoint, I think living in a community and around people who they don't live, eat, breathe politics. Now there's some who do, and there's a larger proportion of them than used to exist. But as a general matter, it really puts in perspective a lot of the things that just take over Twitter. But I will say, no matter where you live, if you bury your nose in Twitter every day and, and, and don't lift your, your eyes from that app, it can be as if you live in the Beltway. You, you can become consumed with all that, the, the, all the Twitter conversation. So that's one, one thing that's new is you could live in Montana and know more about beltway squabbles than you know about what's going on down the street. But as a general rule, I think it's great. It's great for me personally and professionally. And if you, if you choose to be around people physically yeah. who don't care about your pot, I think physically is also true. And also yeah. spend time, actual time with. I mean, I think the great delusion I had for a long time was that, yeah, I'm reading all this stuff on the internet and I do that all day. And I have my friends and then you realize actually not i there it's zero sum hours in the day and mm -hmm. the hours that you are looking at that screen are not hours you are hanging out with a friend even if it's just a casual hangout you know even it's just to yeah. sort of get a drink chew the cud a little bit and, and and yeah and so you become slowly more isolated which i think makes you slowly more susceptible to fantasies yeah uh, and that is what we're seeing right this uh, this 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 horrible event in Buffalo, this person clearly had started almost to live online in his mind yeah. anyway. And we've seen that in a number of these shooters is that they have, they've dived into this online world almost exclusively. And, and then they, you know, they enter this world where they, they almost gamify it. And yeah, it's, it's, it's horrifying. And I agree with you completely physical presence with other people it's just absolutely vital, just absolutely vital. And, and preferably other people who are not obsessing with necessarily the same things You're, where you have a diversity of experiences and professions. And I've done something lately because, you know, we've talked on this, this show forever about managing the Internet, managing our addiction mm -hmm. to it. And I, I've had a little breakthrough lately, which I, 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 is that I have taken it off my phone and I've taken it off my iPad. So mm. it has to be on my laptop, which means I have to be at a desk or at actually in my chair kind of working. And so it is separated out and it's a physically look. So outside of my little office, it's not with me anymore. And it's been quite wonderful. And it, you don't realize that, in fact, those hours of the day you spent looking at that, you weren't doing something else. Yeah. Um, even if it's just hanging out with my dog in the park, it just feel saner at the end of it. Um, I, I did a very similar, th I, I did it with social media on my phone with the exception of the apps that I use to communicate with my friends, like group me, I've removed, you know, I'm off Facebook. I've removed Twitter from my phone. So you just don't do that casual, you know, drive by on Twitter where all of a sudden somebody's wrong online and you got to feel like you have to do something about that. And yes. It's just not good for you. No, it's not. But take me back to that college that you went to. Where, where did you go to college? So I went to a small Christian college in Nashville, Tennessee called Lipscomb University. It's a bigger school now. So maybe four or 5,000 students, but small 
a very conservative school rooted in one particular Christian. It's a denomination, but they don't like to be called a denomination because they it it was part of a restoration. I don't want to bore everyone with the history. But no, restoration is- you won't bore me. It's fascinating to me that the origins of these churches and how they oh yeah themselves so tell me where does where does where does this come from in america's religious tradition yeah so this is a church it's called the the churches of christ or more precisely the acapella churches of christ so there are no musical instruments in worship and it was born out of a movement called the restorationist movement around the time of the second great awakening and it was essentially the church had gone become apostate with the death of the last apostle and for 1800 years was was in error until in the american south in the mid 19 you know mid early 19th century they rediscovered true christianity that's a a, a simplification but a, you know the directional thrust of the story and so when i grew up with the churches of christ and things are very different now but when i grew up with it it was the church of christ the church so baptists catholics Episcopalians, everybody else was in grievous mortal error. And um, the funny thing is, for me, I never believed that. I I remember getting a a Bible from our elders when I was in sixth grade, and I just sat down and I read it from cover to cover like I was reading any other book. And I remember when I finished it, I thought, "Uh oh, (laughs) something's not matching up here with what I'm being taught. And so I was always kind of this. How you know, did you, when you thought about that? I mean, I'm I'm actually remembering one of the few arguments I had coming home from mass months as a kid, where it was Mission Sunday, and we yeah. had, we'd all been had to give pocket money and to to go evangelize people in Africa or mm-hmm. elsewhere. And on the way home, I was like, why can't we just let them be? Like, why do we have to go over there <laughs> and somehow indoctrinate these people who seem to be having perfectly normal lives? And my mother was quite adamant that we shouldn't. But it, like you, I was like, it never occurred to me really, I think, deep down that I and my church alone had the only possible explanation. Right. Uh, right. Even though, of course, my church is almost defined by that claim. It was possible to grow up maybe in the late 20th century and simultaneously be part of that and also hold it in, in some brackets, at least not be completely manic about it. But I... But I want to take you further back into your childhood. So that that version of Christianity was something you you grew up with. Tell me where you yeah. were born and grew up. I'm, I'm sorry to do this a little bit backwards. Yeah. So I was born in Opelika, Alabama, which is a small town right outside of the of mm. Auburn University. My parents were students at Auburn. My mom was in an, un, an undergrad and my dad was a PhD student in math. And he became a, a math professor at Christian at at first at LSU, then at um, Lipscomb, where I ultimately went to college, and then left Lipscomb and taught at a small Baptist college where I spent most of my, ch- my childhood in a little town called Georgetown, Kentucky. And at the time, it was a small town, 8,000 people, tobacco farming community, one county high school. And But then my senior year when I'm graduating, they, they announced that Toyota Motor Manufacturing is going to build a plant, right? You know, three miles as the crow flies from my house. And so now if you go to Georgetown and I, I talk about this rural, you know, Kentucky upbringing and people would say, what are you talking about? That is a thriving small city because of Toyota. But when I grew up there, it was a, a tobacco farming community with a very small Baptist college in the middle of it that my dad taught at. 
And how did you, how did your faith manifest itself in childhood? You know, it's funny in the evangelical tradition, you're often asked, what's your testimony? So like what, and that, what the shorthand for that is what's your conversion story? How did you, and, and I would always say it's the most boring thing in the world. I never remember not believing if that makes sense. I, it makes, I up, it makes complete sense to me. This is, this is, you've almost said in one sentence what I always tell people when they ask me yeah. that question, I don't know what that would mean. Right. Right. So I just grew up believing, but I didn't grow up as soon as I sort of got old enough to start to think through scripture on my own. I didn't grow up believing the church of Christ theology, but I grew up as a Christian firmly, you know, in belief in scripture as, as God's inspired word. And it was part because of my high view of scripture that I had kind of a low view of the theology of the church that I grew up in. And, but I, you know, I stayed in that because church. Because you altered. saw discrepancies between them. You, you, it, it was, it was a unique and quirky. It's, it was, and I keep saying was because right now the churches of Christ are generally sort of general evangelical churches at this point. But 40 years ago, 45 years ago, it was a unique sect. And they had a very low view of the Old Testament, a very high view of not just really the New Testament, the Pauline epistles sort of as a central mm. organizing. Mm. These were the central organizing scriptures and very literalistic in the sense that, you know, I, I, the acapella piece of it is very, very important because it, it underlined, underlined a lot of the theology, which is if it wasn't mentioned in the New Testament as sort of a practice of the church, you're not doing it. You're not doing it. And so you definitely wouldn't have music. I mean, you wouldn't even, you would have churches split over whether or not there could be a basketball goal in the parking lot because there's no mention of like athletic activities in the early church. <laughs> and it would, people would get very intense, very, very intense about these things. And in a weird way, this, that upbringing really helped kind of prepare me for the moment we live in, because it was, there's this Baptist, former head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission who, who named Richard Land, and he says, fundamentalism isn't so much a theology as a psychology, and because you can have fundamentalism within any religion, within any secular ideology, and I grew up with the psychology of fundamentalism, and it kind of really prepared me for the extremism of now it kind of helps help me understand it and get inside it and what what's really you know what's behind it i i feel it's funny i do feel the same way um i as a as a before the age of 10 or so my faith was a very enchanted one it was mm. i had a lovely child, catholic childhood the church was wonderful the school i went to was glorious and it was very non-doctrinaire in so many ways it was kind of a little hippie at the edges then i go to secondary school and now i'm in the, i'm in what's the english school the the grammar school system of the time which was a public estate school and it was church of england so i had to go to church of england ceremonies and so on and so forth and i just became this rabid fundamentalist i think i was both extremely challenged by the new situation a little adrift i was young and I was just completely psychologically unmoored. And so I became obsessive about things like transubstantiation. I'd be obsessed mm. about the finer details of, of the faith. I would be obsess obsessive about 
questions like abortion, which to a you know a twelve year old gay boy was about the the least relevant subject to be <laughs> concerned about. And I could see that too. And I also felt when I was constructing that that it was constructed in some way as a psychological defense mechanism, as a support mm -hmm. structure for myself. And so when it was challenged, my response was very, ang very angry, yeah. very, yeah. very hostile, as if I was being violated, being forced to do things my conscience didn't want. And, I, and, and of course, it then took over your life temporarily. And I see that very much. And of course, if you, you, know, you read someone like William James, you can see religion has many different personalities. Uh, yeah. For mode, varieties of, of, of experience, let's put it that way, and and this is what I try and tell to atheists who are very critical of, of Christianity. This is one of the things I had to talk to Hitch endlessly about, which is that there is a <laughs> distinction between faith and fundamentalism. There yes. really is. In fact, it, it's one of the most important distinctions to make. What? How would you describe that distinction? Yeah, so I describe fundamentalism as a combination of existential certainty and flattening of values. And and what I mean by the existential certainty part is obvious. You you are walking through life quite sure <laughs> that you're correct. The flattening part I think is really important. And what that what I mean by that is there is no real hierarchy of major issues to minor issues. It is they're all major issues. So you know, this is what we see in a lot of the excesses of, of wokeism, for example, where you can put out a statement condemning the murder of George Floyd, say back, remember back in summer of 2020. And if it didn't, if it wasn't phrased exactly right. So even though you are completely on board with condemning the murder of George Floyd and you are completely on board with taking measures to end police brutality, you didn't phrase everything exactly right. You so forgot you're out. to introduce the thing with the land acknowledgement. And so right. obviously you're fascist. Right, right. And so, you know, that that's what I, I saw that growing up. So you could be agreeing on everything. And then you get down to things like, can you have a kitchen in the fellowship hall? Or can you have the basketball court? Or even a little where you agree completely on things like inerrancy of scripture. And, but then I believe... Southern Baptists aren't going to hell, you know, <laughs> it's, and then you become, you're ostracized. And, and I, I like the um, distinction I heard the other day of, and I can't remember who said this. So forgive me if you're listening and you, it's you who said it. And I, but it's also a distinction between seeking converts and hunting for heretics. And a, the fundamentalist world that I grew up in was a lot of hunting for heretics. And the, when I was in healthy Christian communities and when I've been in healthy Christian communities, it is much more this sort of open heart to the world and where you're actually, you have your arms extended, you have your mind open, you have your heart open, but the, the fundamentalist mindset was always parsing and finding the heretic. And this is, once you see this and once you see this pattern, you can't miss it. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's the, Church of Benedict and the Church of Francis. It, 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 is, it is a church that was focused on orthodoxy to mm -hmm. the final degree as the key essential component of surviving, which of course paradoxically didn't help it survive. Actually saw it actually collapse in many parts of Europe in particular, com compared with a sort of an attempt to open to the world and to return to very basic 
values such as compassion or mercy, which is what Francis has done in a very, and of course he's maddened people mm-hmm. who who object to his blurring or mushing the boundaries of theology, so that for I mean the gay question, for example, so that he's not never actually said that the sex without procreation is fine, but he has clearly said demonizing and hating these people is not who we are, and in fact that they are also part of our community and church. And mm-hmm. that's that's a, it's 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 more about emphasis than than denial of 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 orthodoxy. But I what do you say to those who say, well look, this lovey dovey Engage modern world, <laughs> non-particularly fundamentalist religion doesn't do well. This is the core argument made that it just doesn't win. And in fact, Francis has seen a further decline in attendance. That 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 we've also seen. I'm obviously in the 21st century, a pretty epic decline in religious belief in the United States. I mean, quite ahistorical. So let me ask you about that. Why is why is Christianity? In this kind of crisis, who boy, that's a big question. So, one of the things I've done in the these recent years is I've gone back and I've reread Scripture through the lens of every syllable, especially of the New Testament, was written by and to a community that had no power, no power. I mean, unrecognizably powerless compared to where we are. And and what is this message to this community that is? powerless and persecuted to an extent that we can barely ma- barely imagine right they're they're killed <laughs> they're driven out of towns they're whipped they're beaten they suffered beatings we suffer tweetings and and what is the message to this struggling church what is the message that Jesus delivered it's not we will rule it is we will serve. We will love. What are the fruit of the spirit? Kindness, peace, patience, gentleness. What do you do to those who curse you? You bless them. None of it. It is so countercultural. You know, in our in our sort of idea of how you preserve the health of the church now, the church is almost consumed with notions of, of earthly power and earthly respect. Just consumed with it. You disrespect me. You don't like me. Whereas Jesus comes and when he is crucified, you know, and everyone's looking for a Messiah, everyone's looking for a Messiah who's going to do what works and what works was going to be throw off the yoke of Roman oppression, redeem, you know, restore Jewish rule in Israel. And he dies on a cross with like five people around him. Even when he is resurrected, he just appears to a few people and then just kind of leaves them without a plan, just a direction, you know, go and make disciples. And yet here we are 2000 years later talking about Jesus Christ and Caesar Augustus is a footnote to history. And so one of the things that I think when you're talking about Christians right now is they've forgotten some really fundamental basic principles such as, and this is Paul writing to a church that is far more persecuted than Christians are today in this country, in the West generally. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power. And that's not, he's not referring to earthly power. He's talking about confidence in the power of God and love and sound mind. And if you think about the American Christian community right now, is it characterized by 
a spirit of fear, or is it characterized by confidence in the power of God, love for others, and a sound mind? I would say it's more characterized by a spirit of fear. And, and so when I go and I speak at religious organizations and institutions, I speak all the time, Christian colleges, Christian, uh, churches. And one of the first questions people ask me, how do I prepare my child for, for, for college? And I've started to just say, first, fear not. <laughs> don't, don't approach the world with fear. We're the last community that's supposed to approach the world with fear. And I just feel like if I had to pin it on one thing, Andrew, it is the spirit of fear. A spirit of fear has consumed people and it is distorting the way in which they interact with the world. Yeah. And it is a tragic inversion, it seems to me, of what the Gospels are telling us we should be. The Gospels, you could, I think, in some ways, pin the message of the Gospels down to a very fundamental thing, which is that the, it is more powerful to renounce power than to seek it. Yeah. And this paradox, this Christian paradox, that it's it is always to choose the freedom of love over the power over others. And, and, and yet that's something that's so hostile to our core identities as humans, our core nature. We are always seeking power. We are always seeking to protect ourselves. We always did. This is how we construct politics because we assume mutual harm. So we construct societies which can minimize. It's all about that marshalling of power. But the right. point of religion is precisely a liberation from that, a different ca category. So I feel like in some ways the politicization of Christianity is a category error. It just It's the wrong thing. It is about the abdication of power that, 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 that is the strength of Christianity. You know, you really, when you use the word power, I think that is such a key concept to focus on. Because if you look at scripture, scripture says from Old to New Testament has a call for justice in it. So one of my favorite verses, Micah 6, 8 says, what does the Lord require of you, O man, what is good to act justly, to love kindness and to walk humbly with the Lord, your God. It is not a call to power. And those are different things. So a call to justice and we've conflate those things. And I think what's happened, especially in a lot of conservative evangelicalism, politically conservative evangelicalism, they say America will be better if we're enacting justice. For us to enact justice, we have to have power. So the one non-contingency, the thing that's not contingent is the quest for power. But if you go back and you look like on, on January 5th, 2021, the chief of staff to the president of the United States was an outspoken evangelical. The, his, one of his lead lawyers, an outspoken evangelical, a huge section of the Republican delegation of Congress, all outspoken evangelicals. And if you were telling the David French of, you know, 1983, that evangelicals would be in all of these positions of power, I would have said, oh, that means things are going well. <laughs> And then, and yet all of those figures, had they had their way, would have broken this republic. And, and so what got in front was that quest for power. It's what, one of the things that, you know, because then Christians will say to me, well, what are you saying, David? Let all of this injustice happen. I'll say, well, wait a minute. Let's look at a Christian movement that was one of the most powerful movements for justice in the history of the United States. 
and it was the civil rights movement. How much power did they have? You know, it wasn't Rosa Parks has to become a senator before she can do anything. It wasn't that the Selma marchers had to run Congress before they could do anything. And they did it in a way that was very, you know, that upside down kingdom of God of the last shall be first, bless those who curse you. And they, and they achieved a change in American just system of justice that had been elusive for 345 years to that point since, 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 since 1619. Because they didn't fight power with power. They exposed the cruelty of the power that existed. So that right. the iconic image is of the, the cop on horseback or the, the dogs and the human beings that, that, that or being pelted with water cannons. The sheer indignity and horror of that was what altered the conscience of a critical number, not a huge number, but a critical number of people. Yeah at that time to make the possibility of the equal dignity of African-Americans to be actually deeply accepted or at least uh, yeah. formally accepted and, and pronounced. Uh, but when I think of like Jesus in the desert, I mean, this, it couldn't be clearer. Right. It's actually given as one, the whole paradox of this, the one thing I can't get my head around how they can be, I've read the Gospels and not see this, which is that, yes, you could, even Jesus be given the power to do anything good in the world. And he still mm -hmm. said no. Yeah. Uh, you know, and this is, this is uh, not to just really go ahead and nerd out, <laughs> is the, <clears throat> one of the classic, that's, that's the theme of like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. You have this, you have this instrument of power, you have this instrument of power. And if you take it, can't you do great good with it? Couldn't you do great good with it? But ultimately, ultimately, no, ultimately, no. And we just have, um, again, at the risk of being too much of a nerd, we have a whole bunch of people in church who, in the Boromir character, who wanted to seize the ring. We're just, church is full of, the, of Boromirs, <laughs> that, that the, the enemy the, is so strong. And the founders of the country being understanding, I think, this intuitively in, in, in some respects decided that realistically there was, we couldn't depend upon everyone being a wonderful Christian. Therefore we would devise a system where the possibility of any single power accumulating and dominating everyone else would be minimized. Right. Uh, and that too is, and that too is where the right has recently d d changed. Yes. Which is that, to some extent, to me at least, and, always, and, and I, I want to talk about this a little bit, that just as Christianity in some ways is about the abdication of power, so conservatism is about this, a skepticism towards power and its abuse. And therefore, conservatism in the modern European-American sense becomes a kind of defense, rearguard defense of a liberal system that prevents any one single entity from overwhelming everyone else. In, in other words, right. the, in the late 20th century, for example, as opposed to the 19th century, and certainly the 21st century, conservatism, as I understand its long tradition from, from Burke to, back to Aristotle, is about defending liberal democracy. But that is not where the Republican Party and the American right is now going. It, it is about 
believing that liberal democracy itself has, of course, presided over the the degradation of our public life and morality, and therefore some exercise of state power, given how the culture has been captured by the left, needs to be reasserted to impose a conservative traditional vision of the world. And when you and I say, but, 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 <laughs> right. uh, the response is, so what? So, so are you just in favor of letting this shit happen? And just, it, it, and how do you respond to that question? Yeah. You know, I, I spent, from the moment I arrived in law school in, in 1991, I arrived in the era of the shoutdown, the era of, we all, we everybody thinks because we have such recency bias that ne every nothing has been as bad as it is now, you know. And I I know from you know reading your 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 wonderful book about the absolutely unbelievable kinds of blowback you experienced in the eighties and the nineties. And when I arrived in law school, it was the era of the shoutdown. It was the era you know people would scream to try to drown you out when you were in class. And I had this, that those moments fixed in me a, a couple of thoughts. One, it really Im embedded in me a, res a, a respect and love for liberty that uh, I really began to appreciate debate, dialogue, protecting the ability to speak freely, protecting freedoms of association, protecting religious freedoms. And then the, the other thing that it did at the same time was it made me feel that we should be free speech. I protect free speech in part, not just because I think free speech is a value all of its own. As, as Frederick Douglass said, it's the great moral renovator of society and government, but that I have confidence in my ideas. Yeah. I'm not, I don't need the government on my side. I have confidence in my ideas and my experience and thought about the conservative movement is one of the reasons why we did not fear freedom is that we had confidence in our ideas. We had confidence approaching the marketplace of ideas. And what I see now is sort of this sense that says, no, if the marketplace of ideas is open, if there's real, true, free speech and there is truly individual liberty, we lose. And that's an alien thinking to me. That sort of, that, that thought is, to me, going back to that spirit of fear, that's just wrong. And then there's this other thing that's going on that is a lot of reverence for a past that wasn't nearly as good as they think it was. And this sort of desire to go back to a, a version of America that in many ways was fundamentally less just than it is today. And, and what, what a lot of American Christians have gained is liberty because there's an unbroken ring, uh, uh, string for about the past 10, 11, 12 years at the Supreme Court of religious liberty victories. You have more First Amendment rights now than arguably you've ever had in the history of the United States. They've gained a lot of legal liberty, but they've lost a lot of political power and they don't like the change. And, and that's where we are, I think, is that there's now a fear of the marketplace of ideas. There is a sense of a longing for a poorly remembered past and a loss and an actual loss of some degree of power, but it hasn't necessarily made America worse. It's just that they're not in charge, if that makes sense. Well, let's push back on the first one. And I think they would mm. say that, look, it's in the free market of ideas, in fact, uh, conservative ideas tend to do quite well 
at least they certainly hold their you know hold their weight out there right so the average person believes that there are men and women and those two things are distinguishable however the cultural elite has seized certain positions of power to shift the meaning of words the the mm -hmm. which our children taught in ways that is clearly an aggressive attempt to use the instruments of of, of culture and in some ways of government because public schools are an extension of government they're a public right. A good with no debate, with no airing. Should we should we, assigning this text to five year olds or sh is this? <laughs> and so, and if you look at the mainstream media, you can actually see, for example, not just that there is an overwhelming liberal bias or in something like Twitter, but that we've actually witnessed over the last several years a purging of any dissent from within those institutions. So it's so up against the New York Times, the entire educational establishment. All the, all the unions and and the now corporate America, which jumped onto and agreed to critical race theory and critical gender and queer theory as a guide to their employees. This isn't a marketplace of ideas. We have, we, the, the one side has just aggressively imposed certain ideas and then attempted to stigmatize and shame anyone who resists those ideas. So our job is to fight back. That's what they would say. Right. And I would agree on fighting back against I completely agree on fighting back against bad ideas and fighting out back against institutions that are captured by bad ideas. I agree with that 100%. The question is how you do that. And so there's this dispute on the right between small L liberals and what are called post liberals. And the small L liberals would say that you're going to exercise your own freedom of speech. You're going to zealously protect individual liberty from state encroachment. You're going to use existing tools of law. So, for example, if you have things like I, I heard about a case in New York just yesterday where seventh graders were required to sort of state their racial identity and their privilege. Well, that's a form of compelled speech that is going to be unconstitutional. So you fight back um, against that. The post-liberal would say the fact that institutions have been, important institutions have been captured by a hard left, and then they use the freedom that those institutions have because corporations have freedom and in individuals have freedom and colleges have academic freedom. The fact that they use the freedom that they have to sort of name and shame their opponents is evidence that the liberal system itself has failed. And so therefore, what we need to do is seize, use the avenues of governmental power that we have to override their liberty to stop them. So this is like the Florida Stop Woke Act. This is Florida punishing Disney. This is Florida and Texas sort of trying to take over social media moderation. And that's where I, I, you're, I'm absolutely drawing the line because right, what, I don't think there's a path to a better marketplace of ideas through the evisceration of the First Amendment, because that's a foundational principle for our liberal order itself. And so that's where there's a sharp disagreement. I can fully acknowledge that Disney, I have no, I have no, you know, real regard for the way Disney does things when it's going to dive into the Chinese marketplace and, you know, scold American states. I think that's a problem. But I think they have a First Amendment right. They have a right. And I can say you're hypocrites, right? I can say you're hypocrites. And and I think that if we we tell people that, and the other thing, this goes back to this fear point, 
a lot of people in my part of the world where Harvard, Yale, the New York Times, the Washington Post have no purchase. And the Southern Baptist Church has immense power culturally, are saying we're powerless, we're powerless. I mean, you're not powerless. You don't lack cultural power. You have an enormous amount of cultural power. The left does too. The left does too. And they use it in ways that I think are often intolerant and sometimes abusive and sometimes unlawful. And you fight back against that. But we, we shouldn't throw out our respect for the liberal order itself because all of the, you know, because all of the major institutions of the elite are captured by the other side. Yeah, because that principle means that you're giving away your own protections as well at Completely. some future point. Um, mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that you can't run for school board and say, right. I don't agree with this, and I think these should not be available to kids under eight or something, and this book should. That, is, that strikes me as completely legitimate democratic opposition, such as you can also, you know, air, air these questions. I think banning certain ideas, banning certain books from on, from on high, these are, they're not going to help us understand no. the question. They're not going to help us actually govern ourselves. And I think at the same time, of course, I am concerned that the generations are being taught now that America was constructed specifically to oppress people, not to liberate them. And right. that is a foundational uh, teaching that it's now just as kids are being taught as fact that, there's, that men and women are completely interchangeable and that, in fact, you right. can choose to be one or the other or neither or something else entirely. Now, and these are presented as fact. Mm -hmm. uh, I, 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 again, what does one do? I mean, one, one runs for school board and says no. What does one do when all the leading mainstream media organizations run stories through this essentially Marxist lens? In other words, they see this entirely in the terms that someone like Gramsci sees. And they so mm -hmm. internalize this stuff, they don't even see that they're doing it. I can see why. Uh, well, of course, the answer is to do your own thing, push out your own mm -hmm. newspapers and see how they do well. And if you lose the argument, you live in a society in which you've lost the argument. Mm -hmm. All right. I mean, it's not the worst thing in the world right. to live in a society which has made decisions you disagree with. And that's, and I think that's the thing we've lost sight of, you know, the, that sense of perspective that, that, that we can still walk around this country and it's like, but we're going to go war with each other. If yeah. the, the level of this tension continues in this way. Yeah, I'm I'm so very concerned about that. And on the education point, here's where I think a lot of the fault line is. So I think that running for school board and selecting high quality curriculum is an absolute classic example of uh, civic responsibility. Just and if you have a bad curriculum, run for school board, select a better curriculum. What we're doing now, though, however, is sort of creating a, an, an environment at either edge of the extremes that is saying, I'm going to run for school board. I'm going to select curriculum, but that's not enough. I'm going to ban the ideas that I don't like. The ideas that I don't like are going to be banned. How do I know something is problematic enough to be banned? Well, that's but then I'm going to locate that in my feelings. How does it make me feel? And if it makes me feel guilt, anguish, whatever then then there's going to be there's a problem and 
And so what that does is it recreates in many ways the speech code movement that hit colleges in the late 80s and early 90s. It's recreating that speech code movement in 2022 because what the speech codes did is they created broad, vague regulations that ultimately were enforced by people who who were angry and they were angry because of speech. And what that does in school is it really forsakes one of the fundamental purposes of education in a in a classically liberal society. And, and I, I like the way the Supreme Court put it in this, this case called Island Trees School District versus PICO, which dealt with book bans in 1976. And the plurality opinion said one of the purposes of education in this country is to prepare citizens for participation in our pluralistic, often contentious republic. So part of K through 12 education is to prepare people for contention. And if your very view is that contention itself is the problem, you're trying, that's fundamentally kind of remaking our pluralistic society in a way that it can't sustain because we're just too different for unanimity. We're just too diverse for unanimity. We have to be preparing people for pluralism and contention, not shielding them from pluralism and contention. And that applies to the far right where like in my neighborhood, someone tried to ban the book, Ruby Bridges Goes to School, the Moms for Liberty. And that applies to far left in neighborhoods that are trying to teach a third grader there's something wrong with whiteness. Um, it applies in both of these these edges. And and that's my concern is we're just preparing, we're not preparing people for pluralism, we're pre- preparing them to to attack pluralism itself. Yes, because the one thing that I think at this point unites those two wings is a disdain for pluralism. It's I cannot yeah. live with these people. One side says I cannot live with these people because they are perpetuating a system that is designed to oppress certain groups of people. And that's intolerable. And and if I ever put their right to speak ahead of their right to oppress, then I am complicit in this form of oppression. Therefore, there's no, there is no ability to be pluralistic about this. Zippo. And on the other side, it is, is, is these people are attempting to destroy our way of life, that they are deliberately, uh, doing this and we don't really have a choice, but to fight back. And of course we can't live alongside these people. Now, yeah. one possible option is federalism, right? So that we yeah. have little authoritarian states <laughs> next to each other, liberal authoritarian <laughs> states and conservative authorities. And we see that work its way out in terms of who wants to move where, which is really the classic federal. But let me ask you, this is, this is of course, the third rail question right now, the great replacement mm-hmm. theory. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 you can see it back in, you know, the camp of the saints, you can see it in terms of, but it's, 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 and, but it is at the same time, let me, let me put this to you as provocatively as I can. <laughs> let me put it as unprovocatively as I can, which is that we are living in a rather unique situation in world history, which is that, that although the United States has always had a churning set of dem- demographics, it has largely been a North a European country, essentially, yeah. uh, except for the, the, the core American population of African-Americans, which means that this country has always been biracial. It, there's never any, the idea of white, I mean, the idea of a white America is, is, is oxymoronic. America, the black and America was, well, in, in Tocqueville's terms, it was red, white, and black. 
the three yeah. races of the early republic. But so it's never been. That's that's the first thing. It has never been a white country in the way that France was or England was or any, any of these other countries. So I mean, that's that's kind of important. Secondly, obviously, of course, it's, it's based upon a constitution, not a land, not a race, not an ethnicity. It doesn't have that baggage, as mm-hmm. it were, that every other. But nonetheless, cultures emerge, cultures' sense of identity emerges over time. And a predominantly European country did something quite dramatic in the mid-60s in terms of its immigration policies and shifted consciously in the 1965 Act to saying, we are going to make this a, non, a, a much less white country in as much as mm-hmm. we are going to make sure that we have people from Africa, we have people from Asia, we're going to have people from China, we're going to have people from South America and Latin America. And in fact, some of this, there are even parts of the immigration law that has special diversity quotas so that we make sure we get every single person from the world. Mm-hmm. So this was a decision made in 1965 in the 1965 Immigration Act to totally transform American immigration policy, which had been very restricted since the 1924 Act and, and very racist in the sense that it was. Mm-hmm. And so we went from something like 80 to 90% of our immigrants being Northern European ancestry to 86%, I think now, not being of European ancestry. Now, just as an empirical matter, that is going to have, if you have a view of human nature that I think one should have, that is not going to be an easy process in such a short period of time for a country to internalize and assimilate and 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 have no problems. Am I wrong? No, I mean you're you're of of course you're correct. <laughs> you know, if there's one thing that history teaches us, it's that human beings have trouble living with difference. Right. And but our country, our constitutional structure was built to accommodate difference. And and I think this is something that is really important if we're thinking back to the founding and the sort of the, the way we look at the founding to the cheap and lazy way that people look at the founding now is, oh, look at all those propertied European men, Christian men. There was no diversity in the founding. But if you look at the, you know, the just the religious diversity alone of the new nation had ripped Europe apart in the wars of religion prior to the founding of our country. People in Europe couldn't live with that amount of diversity, although they were all white Europeans up there. And so we built a society and we built a country based not on blood and soil, but based on this idea of the equality of man, the dignity of man, and also the fallenness of man, by the way, which is why we have checks and balances and and it is very, it's a society built from the ground up to accommodate difference in the way that many other societies are, are not. But that doesn't mean that difference isn't hard. And, and we keep, one of the things about this replacement stuff is that the, it's this re- incredible combination of stupidity and hatred. Here's the stupidity part. The stupidity part is this idea that demography is destiny when it comes to politics. And you know, I remember when Obama won in 2012, there was always all this crowing about the coalition of the ascendant, you know. And so the Democrats were just going to. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Why was that not called great replacement theory? Well, that's <laughs> I mean, that, right. this is a legitimate point is to say for about 10 to 15 years. Oh, Rachel Sharon, John Judas. Great. Very interesting the emerging democratic majority, demography is destiny, and we're going to win because non-white people are going to be a majority. Now, that's uh, that's great replacement theory, basically. I mean, yeah. what it lacks is, obviously, the key thing is it lacks this 
hideous conspiracy idea behind it. It lacks yeah. all the anti-Semitism behind it. It lacks the sheer the the malevolence that isn't behind it. But it is reflecting an actual fact of a almost historically unique moment in American history. Yeah, where right. demography has deeply shifted, and and not only that, but we never get taught, never never stop hearing about it. Yeah, from the left yeah. first. So how, again, this is what concerns you. Once you get rid of liberalism, and once you say this is about racial oppression, essentially, which is what the left, and that we're going to win now because we got a majority. What do you expect people are going to do if that's how they start identifying as primarily with their race? This is this is in some ways this is the, the it, it's a it's a horrible fact of backlash. Well, you know, when you sit there and you say we're going to win forever. Because of race, because our the their people of people of color support us. Period. Full stop. You're the party white people. White people are diminishing as a percentage. You lose. So that's the coalition of the ascendant theory in a nutshell. And so a it was really dumb. And and I think the emerging democrat democratic majority thesis is. To be fair to Teixeira and Judas, it wasn't just based on ethnicity. It was also based on sort of this professional class, you know, that the emergence of the college professional class and all of that, that has borne out to be a very heavily democratic uh, demographic. But the pure blunt people of color equals democratic victory is proving to be just dumb analysis. And, yes, and it's also wrong. I mean, it's yeah, just it's just wrong. It, and yeah, and. And, and here's where it gets wrong. Here's where things get complicated. And here's, here's where, and it circles back to the start of our conversation, the God gap. So black Americans are very religious. His, Hispanic immigrants are pretty darn religious. White progressives in the democratic party are remarkably secular by comparison to every other sort of subgroup in the United States. You're creating a tension in your own coalition that you think is going to be rock solid around a lot of fundamental values. And so then, but then conversely, all of these uh, people on the right who are like, you know, the Amy Wax argument that is, well, we need more Northern European immigration because that's more culturally, you know, American. Not really, because Northern Europeans are very, very, very secular. And this is a much more religious country. So in many ways, actually, Hispanic immigrants coming in have a lot more co cultural connection with a part of America than do a lot of European immigrants. So all this is much more complicated it's, than... It's all of that is completely true, obviously. Yeah. And, and, and what you will find, I think what people are finding, is that... The Latino vote, for example, is quite fluid and yeah, and definitely moved towards Trump in a way that you would think would completely disprove this entire notion of majority minority country. My concern is that once you have legitimized racial illiberalism, in other words, you see the world yeah. entirely in terms of these groups, and you say, in fact, that it's always the case that the non-white groups should have preference over the white groups, which is the Ibram X. Kendi position, which is which is the position of, of, of a lot of corporate America at this point, you have very few defenses when the, when the ugly side turns around and, and uses that against you. And I think, and I, I wonder if they even hear themselves, because I think within certain democratic spaces, big D democratic spaces or liberal mm -hmm. spaces, 
the routine demonization of whiteness is is at this point a completely uh, banal yeah. thing. Or, or now let me let me ask you this question because it's one that it's, is is it accurate to say do you think to describe the United States in 2022 as a form of white supremacy? The country writ large. Well, the, the system we live under oh, is, okay. is white supremacy. That that would be the argument. No, I, I don't think so. I, I think we, you know, where I am and where people kind of get upset at me on the right is I say we still have and deal with the legacy of that that legal of the legal system that had racially that had racial bigotry enforced by the state and defended by violence from 1619 to 1964. You don't pass a civil rights act start contentious change and wave away all of the effects of that. Obviously. And those and and so to me, I think that's an obvious point. But to to describe the current the 2022 United States of America, I as sort of shot through with white supremacy in a way that has a resemblance, a strong resemblance to the relatively recent past of Jim Crow, much less the more distant past of slavery. I just think that's wrong. That's wrong. And, and I think you would get a lot more buy-in. Here, here's what, here's one thing. Andrew, that's that really that's the narrative that has definitely been absor- absorbed, assimilated in the minds of many people in our elite. I mean, I, I noticed that after Roe, the New York Times editorial board said that it believed it was now completely possible that some states would ban interracial marriage. They, and, and the, the latest yeah. atrocity in Buffalo has led to I don't know how many pieces, uh, but essentially about 70% of the newspapers these last few days have been, this proves that America is, in fact, this is this is America. This is what white supremacy is. This is the world we live in. This is the norm. This is, in fact, they would argue, a completely mainstream Republican position at this point. Yeah, you know, and, and look, <clears throat> the Tucker Carlson replacement rhetoric, I think, is hateful, bad, and dangerous. There is a outbreak in parts of the right of outright racism that has been inflicted on my own family. My, my youngest daughter is black. And when the a lot of the Trump alt-righters found that out all the way back in 2015, just unspeakable stuff happened online and offline. And so that's there. That's there. And, and what we have to do is we have to say, OK, yeah, that is there. But at the same time, you know, you're talking about a country that the vast bulk of the people of this country want to move in a direction of racial equality. Like that is a stated, expressed, frequently reaffirmed desire, you know, even in in things like, you know, college admissions and the Harvard case that's going to be argued this next term in Supreme Court, I think is a, a could be a turning point kind of case. You know, there's an enormous support uh, for legal equality and race blind admissions across all demographics. So this is you're talking about a deep felt American need that is sadly not universal. We have to say it's not universal. We have to acknowledge that there are communities out there that are white nationalist. And maybe they're bigger than I thought. And when I if you'd asked me in 2015, they're out there. But there's this huge felt need in the United States of America towards racial equality within a liberal system, not within an illiberal system 
you know, like the Kindy system, where if there is, you know, a disparity, then the state has to move in in a coercive way. And we've seen the bad effects of that. The Harvard admissions case, one of the reasons why I think it's so important is, one, it, I, it really stands to establish, finally, that civil rights laws mean what they say. Finally. No discrimination on the basis of race, period. I think that's going to be a critically important step if they do it. Number two, what it shows is that even well-meaning, even well-meaning race-based technocracy <laughs> creates unintended victims. So when the Harvard, you know, when Harvard admissions officers are thinking we need to address historical injustice through a holistic admissions process. If you'd put them under a polygraph going back decades ago and you said, are you intending to make sure that a lot of 18 year old Asian immigrants don't get the same chance to come to Harvard? They would have said, no, never, never. But that's what's happened. And if you said, and if you put them under a polygraph and you said, you know, you know, the system, do you believe it will disproportionately help white upper middle class kids get into Harvard? They would have said, what are you talking about? But it does. And this is what happens when you have identity-based, race-based policymaking. You have unintended victims. You have divisive consequences. And I think you really do contradict where the, the, heart, the heart of the American people overall. Not all of them, but overall. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I do not believe that the heart of America, the heart of America, and even more than an ugly small minority are really actually entertaining the fantasy of some sort of white supremacist revival. I, 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 it deserves fringe status. One w reason why I say that is because, obviously, in my own adult lifetime, I've, I've been part of a quite classic liberal <laughs> movement to alter laws and change mm -hmm. attitudes about a minority, which has been extraordinarily successful in, in its core goals, in its fundamental goals. It's now obviously become something else, even though I think it's probably a separate thing now. But, but, but people, Americans in general, they, they don't want to hurt people. Right. Even, even, even this current stuff, this concern about irreversible or medical treatment for children before puberty, in, insofar as they express gender dysphoria, it's presented by the left as if people hate trans kids and wants to hurt them. Whereas, of course, it's so, there are probably some people like that. God help us. But mm -hmm. the vast majority of people just like, hold on a minute. This seems yeah. weird to me. I'm a little nervous about this. And that's where it's coming from. Yes. Now, the trouble is that you can then, the haters will then join in, like this horrible groomer, yeah. this groomer narrative, which is just, it's the most ancient, nasty, awful, unanswerable slur. You just, it's like the slur racist, which is that you, you can't ever say it's not me because the minute you say that you've proven it is. Right. Um, it has that horrible, un, un, you can't get it off yourself once it's on there. But, but the, in general, yeah, people agree. People, people are 94% support interracial marriage. And I, yeah, but does that mean they've stopped being human? Did they stop having visceral responses to things that look different to them? Do they, do they, they, they stop feeling uncomfortable in different situations? Is it, is it a function of bigotry that a lot of people who've never met a transgender person, when they meet one, are a little discombobulated? Of course not.
<laughs> yeah. a little, let's give people a little space here. You know, <laughs> they, 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 and no one's giving anybody space to kind of settle things down and figure things out in a, in a, in a relatively reasonable way. You're either a bigot or you're a pedophile in this particular argument. Yeah. And it is, it doesn't help anyone. No, no, it's the total lack of grace. And, you know, I, as, as I said at the beginning, I grew up in a small town of 8,000 people. I didn't even really know any Catholics for a long time. I didn't meet a single, I didn't meet a single Jewish person until law school in my life. So I have a history, Andrew, of lots of awkward first meetings. <laughs> and and I needed I needed grace during that whole process. I still need grace. I mean, who who among us doesn't need grace? And and that's what is so empty. That's empty of the the conversation. And then you have a this phenomenon where, and because I really think it's so important to express where the vast majority of people are, because you have this phenomenon where the people are most engaged in politics and read the most political media, the class of political hobbyists on the left and on the right, the data says they're most likely to be wrong about their political opponents. They think their opponents are more extreme than they really are. And the people who are least engaged in politics are the most right about their opponents because they get their knowledge of their political opponents from these antiquated things called friendships. And so they know people, whereas if you've got your nose buried in Twitter all day, you know what the worst leftist did in America, you know, like what the worst leftist in America did or what the worst right winger did. And it's fed straight to you and it begins to uh, warp your thinking of the, an, an entire group of people. Yeah, I have to stop looking at libs of TikTok because, yeah. well, but part of, and you, well, the thing is that it's, I know, I know it's capturing something real. It yeah. is, but it, the ability to f put that in some kind of broader context and perspective becomes incredibly hard. You know, when, when, especially when every day you get the same, you know, yep. three times a day, some bonkers 23 year old with pink hair and five nose rings is talking <laughs> about how she's going to turn everybody gender queer in her three year old kindergarten class. And yeah. you, you just think, Jesus Christ, is that really? And, and it's, <laughs> probably not going on everywhere but of course there's no way to to know but have you ever have you ever followed patriot takes so that's the libs of tiktok of the left oh it's, it's called... all the crazy right wingers no i need all the that's crazy what i need to do that's uh yeah. what's it it's, it's on instagram it, it, it's on it's on uh twitter and it's called patriot takes so okay. if you follow patriot takes and you follow libs of tiktok you will just lose all hope because you'll think that both sides have completely and utterly lost their minds and it will it, it will be bad for your mental health. <laughs> but I do tell people who follow libs of TikTok and say, David, don't you know about the left? And I say, have you followed Patriot Takes? Well, that's a you great know? one. I, I think everyone, if they're going to follow one, they must follow both. Gotta follow it seems yeah. that that would maybe balance things out. You said you've had a lot of difficult introductions in your life. And uh, the experience of being in a pretty hermetically sealed religious and then being a person that leaves that place and enters into secular places and engages with people very different than yourself, that's a difficult process that most of Christians go through. I found myself having to do it too, to suddenly mm -hmm. be in a world 
where people don't have the slightest similarity with the world I grew up in. Mine was particularly intense because I grew up a quite devout Catholic and then faced a tremendously secular world in England where, you know, God is, you know, I don't know who believes in God anymore, but it's certainly an esoteric. Certainly the Church of England doesn't seem to anymore. But uh, (laughs) uh, tell me about that. And that does that weaken faith? I mean, you can I see where someone like Rod Dreher is coming from, which is saying, oh, my God, I lived 10 years in New York City. How on earth am I supposed to not succumb to the blandishments of money, fame and sex and pleasure and all the other worldly things that our society has more than more than previous societies offered us yeah. offered to us on a plate. How am I supposed to be chased when Pornhub exists and and <laughs> and, and a twelve year old can find it? You know, I mean, right? And and so they're saying they're saying, can you can the society give us a little help to be a little better than we are? And yeah, isn't 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 that that's not entirely crazy, is it? Shouldn't the society help people be a little bit their better selves? Yeah, you know, so I had two advantages that were really that were I had two profound advantages. One was parents who loved me and loved other people. Okay, so they did not approach the world from the standpoint of other people are a threat. Even though we grew up in this very, you know, conservative fundamentalist upbringing, they were open-hearted to the world. They did not approach the world cl- closed off to it. And they just loved people. And, and so that was an example for me that if you meet a person, my dad had a saying and has a saying, he says, I want everyone who encounters me to leave the encounter feeling blessed in some way. Even if it's just, I was friendly to them that in some way their, their day there was better because we interacted which is like a really idealistic way of approaching the world. And then the other advantage that I got was in these sort of internecine battles over, you know, in in our little fundamentalist church, I gained a very high view of scripture. And and with this high view of scripture, what what are you being relentlessly told? Kindness, compassion, love. If someone's furious at you, you know, you're, you, you know, bless those who curse you, as we said earlier, love your enemy. This is just permeates the whole thing. And one of the sad ironies is some of the people out in the religious world who claim to have the highest possible view of scripture, and they're going to tell you exactly what doctrine to believe and exactly who should do what, exhibit none of the fruit of the spirit. And you're thinking, how high is the view of scripture if you can feel like you can just totally contradict this stuff? So Ironically enough, it was my very sort of reverence for scripture that made me approach when I left my bubble and went to, I'll never forget going to to law school and visiting Harvard and being shocked that there was a bar in the student center. Like that's the thing that stood out to me because you could not drink in my school. You, you could, you would get a breathalyzer test possibly if you came in, if you missed your curfew and I remember being just shocked. So here I am going up there, shocked that there's beer in the establishment. <laughs> and, but I approached it with this. I just couldn't wait to meet people, if that made sense. And, and if you, and I feel like if you have confidence that your faith is empowered by the creator of the universe, 
then Kimberly Crenshaw Law Review article isn't going to be a threat, right? And and I, I just wish... But the trouble but, is, your premise is so rarely correct. <laughs> we live constantly in doubt and fear, fearful that we're wrong, actually. that's The certainty is often psychologically a reaction to one's actual doubt. It's, it's, a, way right. of, it's a way of stamping out what's inside yourself, I think. And, 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 right. and the more certain you are, the easier that is. <laughs> yeah. No, I would say there are some things. Uh, yeah, you raise a really good and powerful point. The certainty that I felt was not that all of my beliefs are correct. And so therefore nothing can shake my correct beliefs. My certainty was much more, you know, God loves Jesus came to this earth and died for me. Like that, that's the basics of it, right? That's the basics. I have faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And what do I know about race in America? I don't know. What do I know about you name A, B, C, D, E, and F issue? I want to learn, you know, you I encounter A, B, C, D, E, and F different person. I want to get to know you. But, but we, we do know so, a little bit. I mean, it, it just the quite radical innovation of Jesus was actually insisting not just that you tolerate the other tribe, yeah. but you go out of your way to favor them over your own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, the radicalism of Christianity is not just forgiveness, but a forgiveness a million times against the yeah. most recalcitrant uh, sinner against you. It is an extremism of acceptance. And it's ext- almost, ma- I mean, this is what Nietzsche's problem with it was. It's kind of slave morality. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's ironically what the, the religious rights critique of, of your kind of Christianity is really Nietzsche's critique of all of Christianity, mm-hmm. uh, which is a bunch of losers, pansy asses sitting around doing nothing and, and, and thinking that being victims is somehow makes them glorious. Well, just so happens that is what Christianity teaches that it yeah. does teach that victimhood is actually something to be sought for the right reasons yeah. and embraced. Um, yeah. One always wonders what would have happened if Christianity had remained, had not been, you know, if Constantine had not converted. I mean, if, if Christianity I had wonder. never been wedded to the institutions of power. I wonder, and I, I, you know, that was part of the debate, but the David Frenchism debate was about this very point that the wedding, the marriage of Christianity and power is exactly what our country and our culture need. Whereas I'm looking at Europe, which had, I mean, you couldn't be more entangled between Christianity and power in Europe for centuries. And Christianity is nearly extinct there while it thrives in much of the rest of the world. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the marriage of Christianity and power was followed by the near extinction of Christianity in much of Europe. I don't think those, I think those two things are related. But one thing I do want to say is, look, um, I don't want to make it seem like I walked into the world as like the nicest, most open-minded person in the world. (laughs) I've been wrong, loudly wrong about a lot of stuff in my life. But I think the the fundamental disposition was, and I always tried to separate person from position and love a person, regardless of, you know, e- even through differences of positions. And I've, I've tried for that. 
I've not always been great at it, but I've I've tried for that. That's also important too. And this, I mean, I remember this just a moment in my college life where I made some rather caustic remark about upper class Tory bullshitters like Boris and <laughs> Boris and his chums all dressing up in white tie and going to have dinners in restaurants and wrecking the restaurants and having daddy pay for the damage and all it's just the most <laughs> worst stuff but i would dismiss them and one of them said to me you know who wasn't one of my friends and who wasn't actually one of this group but was part of the same eaton circle said to me you know you don't know even what they've been through you don't know mm-hmm. you don't even know what that asshole who broke that set of glasses actually grew up with no love from his mother and father, might have had mm-hmm. a lot of money, but was brutalized in a boarding school. And, right. and this is, you know, you, you, even those people, in fact, it's precisely the people you are least likely to want to see the good of are the ones that Christianity at least says you must, which is why the political temptation in Christianity is so, is again, is, is to miss the central truth of Christianity, it seems to me. Well, you know, and you raise a great point because in the online world, we see a lot of people who are behaving, they're, they're breaking the tables on Twitter, you know, and, but a lot of those people are manifesting signs of their own brokenness that they're, a lot of the people who are among the most despised or the most trollish voices, there's something deeply, profoundly sad going on. And and, you know, I'm, I'm reminded again of this scripture of a bruised reed he will not break. And that was sort of the pro- prophecy of, of Christ, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And, and I feel like what you see around us are a lot of bruised reeds and a lot of smoldering wicks. And it doesn't manifest itself in a sympathetic way. It doesn't manifest itself as like, I'm hurting, please help me. A lot of times it manifests itself as, you know, I'm an asshole, I'm going to hurt you. <laughs> but, and you have to defend yourself from, you know, from aggression. But there, I really do believe that there is this, this brokenness that's being manifest in a lot of this toxicity. And once you understand that that brokenness exists, I think it helps you see people perhaps in a more, have a bit more, just a bit more grace. I need to see better, I think, how an African American would feel traumatized and and incredibly depressed and angered by what happened in Buffalo. Right. I have to yeah. really attempt to understand that from the inside out. I also have to understand the fear and panic of a 55-year-old white man in the Midwest who feels that his whole country is like turned against him and doesn't care about him anymore. And now yeah. he may be quote-unquote privileged, but he may not be actually. He may be quite, he may be struggling. He may have But you think of the distress in those areas, the human loss in those areas, especially, you know, the opioid epidemic has kind of illustrated it. The Mm -hmm. the deaths of despair, of suicide, of of drug abuse, of of, of violence in these places is is extraordinarily high by historical standards. So I want to end by asking you just something a bit even more, a bigger question, which is how does faith stay alive in a world and this is a sort of version of the Rod Dreher point, but it's, 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 it's meant not to think of it as neuro- neurosis, but as how does it survive the onslaught of 
secular contempt, scientific, relentless evidence that many of the stories in the Bible are obviously metaphors and not truths. How does how does a human, a Christian today, sustain his or her faith best of all? Now, some of it's obviously being expressed in political political fanaticism mm-hmm. as a way. Some of it isn't. Yeah. Still, a lot of good people doing good things every day in in their Christian lives. What's the secret to retaining some kind of faith in these in in this period? Is it the same as ever, or is 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 it, or is modernity particularly hostile to this? I don't think we. I, I, I'm gonna and I, people get kind of mad at me when I say this. I don't think we live in a time that is particularly hostile historically. Okay, so. I think that if you look back to the first century when Paul was writing his epistles, if you go back to when Jesus was on this earth, that's hostility. That's hostility, you know, trying to using the brute force of the world's most powerful empire to stamp out a belief system that's held by a tiny few people who have no political power to speak of. That's hostility. Or even if you go back to the, say, the Middle Ages and the the tight entanglement of state power and Christianity to say that that was a hospitable time for genuine Christian faith. I would say not. I would say the opposite. And by contrast, what do I do? I get up every, I get up on a Sunday morning and I go to a church that's full of people who openly are Christian Worshiping openly without the slight the the slightest care or concern that the government's going to come in and shut them down. That the big challenge is what Disney is going to win my kids away. I mean, again, if you talk to like, if could you imagine going to a small church meeting in a cave in like eighty eight A.D. and you would say and you shared your challenges <laughs> and you said, you know, there's this thing called Disney and it's pretty woke. And, and they would just look at you like, hold on just a second. Where are you meeting? Where are you meeting free from state repression? Well, oh, no, I mean, you know, we have our pick of mega churches, you know. And then the questions, and you would get to your pouring out your soul about how bad things are. And I just don't think they're awful on a historical basis. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't challenges. That doesn't mean that there aren't temptations. Of course, Christianity is always going to be countercultural. Even when there's an established church, sometimes the authentic Christian faith is the most countercultural of all. So it's always going to be countercultural. But I think a root of so much that's making people feel fear and fury and anger is they've been taught this is the hard time. This is the worst time. And and I and and I just continually push back against that. Doesn't mean it's an easy time. I, I'll never. I'll, <laughs> you, you you talk about a, rather old I mean, ancient history, but but if you lived anywhere in the Eastern Bloc, in our yeah. adult lifetimes, you could not practice your faith. In China, it it it's. I mean, it's it's in fact an extraordinarily free world in terms of religion and Christianity in comparison to the past. And yet it's precisely that freedom which seems to prompt our collapse. You know, free, freedom freedom is hard. Yeah. It's hard no, work, that, as George that, Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's why I said, you know, it's always countercultural. I mean, think in this country in 1960 in Alabama, if you're a Christian and you express, express a fundamentally authentic, basic Christian worldview, authentic Christian worldview of race, 
You talk about cancel culture. I mean, that's the belt buckle of the Bible belt in 1960. If you express an authentic Orthodox expression of Christian faith on race, you would have longed for the mercies of modern cancel cancel culture. Right. Right. And so this is, this is, it is counterculture. They're counter countercultural. There are challenges, but there is absolutely no need to panic. And panic itself is our enemy in, in so many ways. And Christianity operates at a level which is indifferent to and cannot really be attacked by politics. And I think that's, I mean, I think, I always think of the, uh, when I think of the issues about multiculturalism and multiracial society, I think, I just think of, there's neither Greek nor Jew, neither man nor woman, but one. Mm -hmm. Well, hold on a minute. What, did did St. Paul say there's neither man nor woman? (laughs) Uh, Maybe there's something here. Maybe we, by by absolutely fixating on that distinction, we are missing the broader point that, in fact, that is irrelevant in the eyes of God. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and insofar as, that's why I have a hard problem with Christian hostility towards transgender people or the idea that someone might need or feel the need to, for their own self-preservation uh, to change their outward appearance. That's irrelevant to God. It must be irrelevant to God. I'm sorry. I, it, it, there is, this is not what God is judging us on, whether we are man or female. It, it's not. It's, he's not judging us whether they're black or white either, and, or whether we're circumcised, for that matter. Which another, <laughs> Anyway, that was part of the Greek nor Jew thing, I think. That was what they were all obsessed about, as, as some yeah. of us still are, of course. But David French, it's been a real lovely pleasure to talk to you. You, you really help a lot of people i think who are out here who's who still think of themselves as christian who who do not identify with some of the rather ugly parts of the right but who are also really unnerved by where the left is going and trying to find some spiritual peace in all of this because it's a tough and i see i just see the group mentality gaining i see with each awful incident lines hardening ever further and i'm just when it, how is this going to resolve itself? And you hope it can resolve itself in the political system, and then you worry that that itself is being delegitimized, and you wonder where they go next. But thank you for being there, David, and it's been lovely to talk to you. Well, Andrew, thank you. I've been reading you for more than 30 years. Jesus, I know. Yeah, I, I have been reading you for more than 30 years, and you have, you have made me think for 30 years, and you have changed my mind on some things. You've When I've still stubbornly insisted that I was right. You've made me sharpen and clarify my thinking on some things and your work's been a gift to me for a long time. So thank you. Well, that's, that's a lovely thing to hear. I was in- incredibly moved by the review you did of my book. I haven't, I'm, I'm, I, I kind of think that reviews should be left completely separate from our interaction, but it was shocking to me. It happened. It came, it came out on my birthday, which happened to be publication day. And I've, I would, I couldn't have dreamed a, a, a fairer, more, open-hearted and open-minded review and that it appeared in the new york times is still staggering to me so i don't know how that (laughs) happened but i am most grateful and we will see you next week we have again some amazing guests coming up and and we've had a pretty amazing run so far and and i'll be heading up to provincetown soon and we'll be broadcasting from there maybe with some some interesting provincetown characters coming your way on the dishcast lots of love and we will See you next week. And one little word, we 
I don't read ads. We don't have ads. We don't interrupt these conversations. And we're able to do that because you support us. And if you haven't, and if you've been listening to these, as there are many of you have and never actually subscribed, please do. It really helps us keep this going. Thank you to everyone else. We're, we're actually doing great in terms of subs and in terms of income. So we are, we're, we're, we're full speed ahead here. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next week on the Dishcast. <laughs>